I think that we're developing a reputation because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because well, that's time to quit. Then five, five well, years, six years. Okay, we're protect. We're developing one particular kind of de- reputation that I'm thinking of today, and that is that. Uh, so a, a news story hit the net today, and I'm telling you, like a dozen listeners have sent this news story to me by Twitter and email and and uh, you name it. It's come to in the forums. And this has to do with a bet, oh, yeah. as I understand the story. Let's see here. Where is it? This is from a BBC news technology story, bbc.com. Uh, researchers use spoofing to hack into a flying drone. Uh, and uh, let's see now. American researchers took control of a flying drone, drone, drone by hacking into its GPS system, acting on a thousand-dollar dare from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So uh, let's see now. Todd Humphrey and his colleagues at the Radio Navigation Lab at the University of Texas Austin hacked into the GPS system of a drone belonging to the university. So well, now this is definitely one uh, bit of research that n- no one should be accused of uh, of overspending to to accomplish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you think this is a good discovery? You think it's worthwhile expenditure of of uh, education dollars? Well, you know, along the lines of they had credible researchers uh, engage in in, in a, an overt act uh, against a target that uh, had been already identified and. Uh, an opportunity to confirm what we know already has happened. Well, we think it happened, right? You're talking about Iran, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're saying that oh, like... Yeah. Yeah. Right, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I need to go get my tinfoil. Hang on. David, so, no, I'm serious, David. We all think that this is how Iran managed to steal one of our drones, our military drones, I should say, uh, whatever it was, some months ago. Has that actually ever been confirmed? Uh, it's never been publicly confirmed, but there's been people who say, how else could it have happened? Okay, well, that's well, close. There's, but there's a, there's a lot of other ways it could have happened. I mean, yeah. you know, we don't know. The, I don't know the failure modes on one of those. I'm, I'm sure I can figure one out, though, that, that has it doing exactly what happened. Yeah. But $1,000? Yeah, I know. Um, well, yeah, come on. I, I would have written that check. Yeah, you know. I know, I know, really. I tell you what, yeah, we'll, 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 <laughs> I just decided, let's establish the UCAP prize right now, okay? $1,000 for doing what? I don't know. We'll have to think about this I a little bit. Well, we can talk about that later. Yeah, in the meeting. That'll come up in the meeting. Yeah, uh, that'll come up in the board meeting. Yeah. Uh, so they've managed to do this. Now, admittedly, they've, they've, they've apparently managed to, quote-unquote, hack um, a, the university drone, which is probably not quite as... I was going to say not quite as secure as a military drone. Well, but it wasn't. Had, it wasn't encrypted at all, from what the report said. Yeah. So, uh, so it's not exactly, well, but it's still. Here, it's a thing. Here's another. Here's another question I have. Yeah. Why does the university need a drone in the first place? Oh well, just like come on, you know, it's a cool toy. I. I, they're, I, mean, I, they're, I they're, they're working on a shoot for the 2013, the engineers of the University of Texas drone team. <laughs> yeah, they're going to add them to the drum major. And they're going to I want to know, the, I want to I want to know when you can buy an NRA sanctioned drone. That's what I want to know. Yeah. They demonstrated the technique to D this the, the part of this that kind of almost makes me not believe it is that DHS was involved in it, the Department of Homeland Security. I wouldn't think they'd want to be within, you know, miles of this kind of a demonstration. Well, if you want to know how it's done, you get somebody that knows how to do it, show you how to do it. Yeah, but what, not what what not, strikes me is that is that DHS would even want to be there. 
That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I, mean, well, and, I mean, yes, David, you'd get somebody that they want to know if they can do it, but they're not going to get a bunch of college kids to show them how to do it. You know, they're, they're <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, if you bid this out uh, to the usual suspects in the industrial uh, and defense complex, uh, that thousand dollars is probably going to multiply by a couple of thousand times. Mm-hmm. For them to demonstrate for you on a on a similarly unencrypted open source uh, GPS engine uh, that can be spoofed from the ground. Yeah, which spoofing? You know what are you talking about here? You're talking about basically creating a GPS signal, right? That overrides the one the satellites are sending down uh-huh. and gets the receiver on the drone to lock into its coordinates as its current position. Right, makes sense, okay. I guess. Yeah. Then, then it's the drone's going to fly the pre-programmed uh, uh, route to the downstream position based on where it thinks it is rather than where it actually is. Mm-hmm. Well, you could displace a location sufficiently to make it fly through, uh, you know, say a, an area populated by tall buildings. Yeah, no, no, I know. But it's I supposed mean, to be out in the in the boons and. Well, uh, Keep it and it doesn't even have to be armed or anything. It just has to be big enough to punch a hole in a window. Well, I, yeah, I don't know about that mind, part. But. Guys, keep in mind also the GPS, the standard, you know, un, unmessed with uh, GPS signal is fairly weak. Right. Yep. So it shouldn't take much power, much of a, of a, of a device to, to override and send stronger signals that the system inter- intercepts. I guess. That would seem to me to be, you know, the first, first line of, uh, of attack on that system. Um, well, that's that but, was the but, root of the argument over light squared. Say again, David. Said so that was root, the root of our argument. With, well, uh, yeah. with light squared, is that yeah, their but, signal but was going to drown out the GPS signal? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and here we're, we can might be seeing that as a spoof. Um, but the thing is, even if they encrypt these things, mm-hmm. it's encryption. It can be broken. It can be created. Right. It can be uncreated. So. That's right. um, I don't know. I mean, as I said in the last episode, are we really talking about having these things flying around? Well, we are. Uh, with pe- uh, next to airplanes with people in them? Is that really what we're talking about? I was. Well, so I was until flying. you take the profit motive out of the idea, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Here's, here's a question, sort of a follow-up question I have. Um, I, yesterday afternoon, I was returning on a flight back from the West Coast, and uh, I was uh, flying San Diego to Baltimore. We were, we were pro- doing the approach into Baltimore and uh, had occasion to look down onto the area sort of where Pax River is located there and got to thinking about that drone that crashed over in Maryland a few weeks back. Has uh-huh. there been any more news about that? Have you guys heard anything more? Oh, no, about actually, I haven't heard a peep. I, I this is really interesting, you know, because so everyone was all concerned about how you know why did it crash and oh my goodness and you know and and I got to thinking why was it even there? All right, how you know the fact that it was even over the the you know eastern shore, if you will, uh, uh, suggests to me that it had escaped that it it shouldn't have been there. <laughs> some, some of the eastern shore is, is authorized airspace for some of that stuff. Oh, it is. Okay, I didn't. Some know. of it. Some of it. Well, but the the place where this this Maryland drone crashed a couple weeks ago was wasn't the weren't the reports that it was near you know homes? I mean near. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a it few was, miles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It crashed in a swamp. Yeah, but. Yeah, okay. So there's been no more news about that, huh? I mean, you'd think, or or you'd think there wouldn't be news. I guess maybe it makes sense that there wasn't news if you're of a cynical turn of mind. Now you're getting it. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, Pay no attention to that drone behind the curtain. Maryland drone crash. Jeb's probably ahead of me on this. Uh, well, I've got the wiki page open for the uh, I've got Huffington Post from June 11. Now, that's probably when it happened. Yeah, June 11's when it happened. June 11, June 11. Look at this. There are no stories that are not dated June 11. That's Maryland drone crash? Is are you seeing That's that, really interesting. Is that what? The fix is in, man. Look at this. Every single every single Google hit is dated June 11. There's, there, I can't find. And, and there's, and, yeah, I was going to say that there were so many that day. You may go through pages. Yeah. Between original files and update. Oh, files. Okay. Oh no, no, you're isn't right. There okay. isn't, there, isn't there a way to filter here? Well, I don't know. I added the words June 12 to my to my query, and I did get a June 12 story here. Now, let's see. So what would what would a week after? Uh, yeah, go to June 18. Or, yeah, okay. Right, let's see what June 18 says here. Uh, June, they're back to being June 11 stories. <laughs> uh, and uh, here's one that's dated June 18. Uh, let's see now. From the the Phoenix Network. Oh, that sounds like a really reliable source. What's the phoenixnetwork.us? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm they set birds on fire and they come back oh. to life. Oh, well, okay. I'm not really buying this particular source. Uh, U.S. Dateline, U.S. Naval Air Station, Patuxent River, on Monday, June 11th, operates located on the base, lost contact. The drone on a routine training flight crashed in an area along the Nanticote River. Now, see, this here's is just a, a rehash of here's the a, uh, Here's a news story from today on this. Okay, okay. what's it say? A uh, civilian company contracted to clean up drone crash site. Okay. Uh, cleanup efforts are underway in Dorchester County, where an unmanned aircraft from Patuxent River Naval Air Station went down uh, earlier this month. Um, cleanup team to the crash site, contracted with a civilian company for site cleanup, said um, um, spokesperson for uh, Pax River. Um, da, 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 da. Cause of the crash on the eastern shore is still unknown, Cosgrove said Tuesday, but the Navy is still conducting a thorough investigation of the incident. Absolutely. It crashed just after noon on June 11, approximately 20 miles from Salisbury, Maryland, while undergoing routine maintenance tests by the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the the uh, aircraft was received from the Air Force Global Hawk program. <laughs> the Air Force purchased the drones for $45. million each in fiscal 2011. It's only a year old. So Man. is this by any chance a weekly publication? Because it sounds it's, like a weekly catching up with what happened since the last well, issue. This this looks like a tr- some kind of a trade um, journal. Okay. S U A S News. Let's see what this goes to at home. Are we recording all this nonsense? Yeah, but people, we, are, people are screaming at their iPods. <laughs> Maybe all I know is that it's just astounding. What, fortunately, many- the Pilot was uninjured. Yeah, I know. Right. How many of these? This, this looks like a, an industry website for the drone industry. Yeah, well, there sounds you go. like it too. There yeah. you go. Well, listen. Well, like you know, while you keep while you continue to Google drone crash, um, I'll do a little bit of business here by saying, "Welcome, folks, to episode 293 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast." At last. Clear. 
going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really noise. It's good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, That's is, right. this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We've got Skyriders now. We've got Skyriders We've got Skyriders now. Sky now. Sky now. Does that say UCAP? I can't It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you're on site, clear land. Turkey National Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. We're recording this episode on, uh, episode on Friday, June 29, 2012. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar and searching the web for news about drones are my two good friends. Uh, first of all, Dave Higdon's out there talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How you doing tonight? Uh, doing great and drone-free since 1972. Yeah, that's what you think. That's what you think. <laughs> you just don't know until you know. Uh, anything's possible. Did you see the later, latest copy of Wired magazine? I just I just got it, picked it up on the newsstand last night. Jeb, you're going to love this. Have you yeah. seen it? Uh, what's on the cover? Uh, uh, do-it-yourself drones or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got that. Yeah, got it's that. A, apparently yeah. a cover story about uh, how drones are, you know, here they come, look out. I forget what the headline was exactly, but... Uh, here they come. You know, and... Uh, flying down your street. So, yeah, well, that's... yeah. Taking pictures of your backyard when you cook your meat. <laughs> <laughs> with the drone ace. Okay. Oh, and I, my other good friend is out there, Jeb Burnside, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you? I, I can't top that. I know. I wouldn't, I'm not going to even try. Oh, not even going to try. Okay. Uh, you realize that that will, David, make it into some future Mike Morgan, uh, uh, you know, montage of... Uh, oh, oh, well, there it goes. You know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, oh, darn. <laughs> Anyways, what's going on, Jeb? How you doing? Doing all right. Uh, suffering from writer's block here in the last couple of days. But, uh-huh. Yeah. So is it true that you now need a rowboat to get from your bedroom to your kitchen? And it was it wasn't all that close a thing, um, but we had a lot of rain. <laughs> That's what I hear. Um, <laughs> anywhere uh, from from uh, eight to twelve inches, depending in the county, depending on the sensor and where it was situated and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Over six days, we went from babbling about drones to babbling about the weather. Maybe we should maybe we should talk about airplanes in here someplace. Uh, but first I'm going to say, and I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from high atop Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire, where I'm back after uh, a week in San Diego. What's, I had, the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the field elevation there? Uh, about 250 feet. It's not a field, it's a lake, but you get the idea. Um, call that, you call that Lookout Point at 250 feet above sea level? Well, the lake is 250 feet. We are, we are towering. The Lookout Point itself towers oh. over the lake. I just, I just, I just figured this out. It's not, you know, look out as in, you know, spy something. Is oh my God, look out! Yeah. Look out! Look out! Look out! All right, shh, we don't let on that. We, we, we want to leave leave the other impression. Figured it out. Yeah. I uh, got back from uh, a week in San Diego where I was uh, uh, helping out with a, uh, an education show, education and technology show. I got, I had, and this is, this is aviation related. I'm, uh, I had, I think, maybe the best hotel room ever when I was in San Diego just now. I stayed in a hotel called the Marriott Marquis. It's right there on the edge of San Diego Bay facing Coronado Island. And Right out my bal- out the window of my hotel room, I'd step out on my balcony on the 16th floor, and I could see across to the um, the uh, naval air base across the way where the U.S. Uh, aircraft uh, the aircraft carrier Carl Vinson was sitting there at its dock, uh, as well as a couple other Navy ships. The U.S. Navy Yard is down to the uh, south of where I was, and so every single day, multiple naval vessels would cruise up and down the bay. There was a never-ending stream of Seahawk helicopters going up and down the. Uh, it was just, it was 
at Naval Aviation Wonderland. It was just awesome to 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 watch out my window. Saw some cool stuff. Got a chance to visit while I was down there the. Uh, the uh, retired aircraft carrier, the USS Midway, uh, is, as many have been, turned into a, mu- a floating museum there on the uh, shoreline in uh, San Diego. And uh, got a chance to go on board and crawl around in some of the lower spaces and uh, up on the, the hangar deck. I mean, I've seen pictures of these hangar decks, but man, what a big open space that hangar deck is. And uh, and then, of course, climbed up onto the flight deck and, and just kind of chance to uh, both look at some you know, restored aircraft that are sitting up there, but also to just kind of imagine what it must have been like when those decks are are you know in operation. Uh, what a what a machine that 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 aircraft carrier is! Wow, they are uh, really complex pieces of hardware. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was when. When I went on board, you you enter along this gangway that takes you onto the hangar deck level, and and I and for whatever reason I decided I wanted to hold off going up onto the flight deck for kind of you know later in the in the tour. So instead of going up, I went down, and so I was following these signs that said I, it was taking me to the engine room. All right, and so you go down one one uh, st- you know, set of steps, and then you go down another set of steps, and then you go down. another I'm thinking, man, I'm getting really you know three four levels down here before we got to actually one of the engine rooms, and. Uh, wandering around and you, and, and you were looking at it at it from a high point yeah you're right we were i was at the top of it you're right yeah. and uh um, i was seeing just just the very very top part of the uh of the boiler turbine um reduction gear thing um very very cool quite a machine uh and uh you know just walking around and boy i you know fortunately there were arrows directing us along a certain you know route as we were looking at things the yeah, idea of otherwise you're going to get really lost oh uh, i mean i did get i mean i did get lost i'm following the arrows you know and at one point i went down the steps in one point in the hangar deck and i'm going around and around looking at this looking at the mess hall looking at the ward room looking at the captain's cabin looking at all this stuff and finally it takes me back up to the hangar deck level and i come up and i'm going where the heck am I? And I realized that I was practically, you know, I was on the other side of the ship, you know, halfway down its length because I had been zigging and zagging down below decks. It was... Uh, which ship was... Which, which carrier was this? The Midway. The Midway. Where, where is that? It, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's now a, a permanent museum in San Diego. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so that was very cool. And... Uh, Got to listen to uh, a couple of lectures about uh, deck operations, about how the catapult mechanisms work, and so forth. It was great. I, I was. A, I wish, as I've said before, I don't usually have a lot of spare time when I'm out working on these jobs, and and it was just pure serendipitous luck that I got uh, a part of an afternoon off. And I almost didn't go to the Midway because I knew that it closed its doors at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was only going to have about 90 minutes on board. But I finally decided that I'd do it anyways, and I and I would love to go back and spend more than 90 minutes just wandering around and looking at everything. And I didn't get a chance to get up onto the uh, above-the-flight deck levels, uh, the bridge and, and that kind of thing, because it had already closed for the day. when I Was, was there a big line for the catapult ride? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a really interesting uh, uh, older gentleman uh, who had been a a crew member on the Midway at one point, and he was doing a lecture about how the catapult works. And it's it's interesting because he's describing it all in fascinating terms, and uh, uh, and and it's taken him, you know, like a half an hour to tell the story. And at one point, he says, he says, "Now everything I've told you so far takes place in about fifteen seconds." You know, and everybody laughs because oh wow, these things happen fast. You know. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of people involved in making that happen. Yeah. 
Yeah. Another funny line I heard was, uh, so as most people know, uh, the uh, on the flight deck, the different jobs are denoted by different colored jerseys. You know, like some people wear yellow jerseys and red jerseys and, 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 and you know, brown Blue and white. And, right, and, right. and they all mean different things. So there's an exhibit on the flight deck uh, showing uh, uh, little cutout figures, uh, life-size figures of people wearing their various colored jerseys. And there's an explanation on the wall behind each one of them. Um, circle and apparent sorry alice's restaurant reference yeah. just popped into my mind anyways so these cutout figures of every one of the colored jerseys is standing there by the edge of the flight deck all right and i'm like reading the signs and taking pictures of these things and i hear a, a, a high school kid or somebody behind me going wow boy they just look like the power rangers look at them they're all different <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking you know it really does all these people with their helmets and the whole thing look just like power rangers anyways uh i had a great time in uh, all in, i know is all I all I know is you don't want to be in a Star Trek episode wearing a red shirt. A red jersey, absolutely not. Yeah, what does red jersey mean on the on the aircraft carrier? I forget now. I think it's safety. Uh, fire. I think it's fire. Firefighting or something like that, or safety or something like that. Yeah. Damage control. I yeah. Think. Right. But. Uh, Anyways, had a great time in San Diego. Uh, uh, my thanks and apologies to a handful of listeners who reached out to me while I was in San Diego, inviting me to do various things, um, and I was unable to uh, to accept any of those invitations. Um, I really do appreciate the invite, but uh, with the exception of these very very spontaneous afternoons off, I really don't have a lot of you know control of my time when I'm on these trips. So, anyways, that was my trip to San Diego. It was very cool, and uh, posted a couple of pictures over at the AroundTheField.net blog if anybody wants to look at them. And uh, I'm hoping to package up a whole bunch of my pictures from the Midway uh, tour to uh, put on the blog. So that's coming later on. Well, all right. I guess we're supposed to do a podcast in here someplace, right? Let's see. What were we, what's on? The, is there anything interesting on the list? Where's the list? I've got, the list is buried beneath stories about drones and. Uh, let's see now. Uh, the NTSB came out recently, or somebody came out recently, with the claim that uh, weather display, in-cockpit weather displays, may be uh, a little bit confusing. Well, that's a safety alert from the National Transportation Safety Board mm-hmm. that they, they put on the street uh, about a week ago. Yeah, uh, like that. Sounds right. June 20, June 21, somewhere along there. Uh, talking about the age of the weather mosaic that's shown on most cockpit displays and not coincidentally it's usually the same information that's shown on uh, tablet computers and and, uh, 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 electronic flight bags that have uh, data link weather reception capability and some of those don't work all that well in terms of both how quickly they're delivered and in it's in the case of some of the non-aviation stuff, in the the relationship between the map that's provided by one source and the radar grid stuff that's provided by another, they don't always coordinate correctly. Hmm. Well, this was primarily a warning about the age issue. Right. Now, I, I, I've noticed that mo- many, I don't know most, but many of these are, in fact, placarded in some way or shape or form, you know, information delayed by 15 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Are they even saying that we can't believe that, that it could say 15 minutes and it's actually 45 minutes old? Is that what they're saying? No. You've got to keep in mind what that little, and, and reference my 396, yeah. uh, which, with which I'm fairly familiar. I have XM Weather uh, Nextrad on it. And... I will get a message. Uh, it I, it rarely says more than eight minutes, 
usually it, it will never go over five or six. And that is, that's, that's the refresh rate for the 396. And it tells me how old the data is that I'm looking at, how long it has been since my receiver received it. Okay. okay. I know that because I read the manual. Okay. Right. There is also some time involved before it's even sent to my receiver. Right. There's some processing time, another five or, or, or eight or ten minutes or something like that. So what the NTSB here is saying is that the, the data displayed on the in-flight screen, in-cockpit screen, can be as much as 20 minutes old. Yes, they are right. They're absolutely right. <laughs> and, and this isn't new. Uh, and this is not new. People, any anybody who uses these tools should know this by now. Mm-hmm. Okay, but and there's, there's some mechanics involved. Uh, <laughs> Jeb was couple, talking a couple about of technicians too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, well, for example, uh, Doppler weather radar, uh, the composite image that they like to show us on TV is always a series of of images put together from sec- six different scans with the antenna at different angles to develop the top-to-bottom composite component of that. So the radar has to sweep, the antenna has to sweep six times. It goes around once a minute. It gets that six sweeps, gets the composite, then it runs through the computer system. What What goes into that composite image takes six minutes alone to accumulate. And then it has to be processed, and like Jeb says, there's some technician in, uh, involved in it just to make sure that it's going together correctly. Most of it's fairly well automated. But then from there, it gets routed up from the ground station to the satellites where it gets queued up for broadcast back down to the receivers like Jeb's uh, uh, little Garmin, like my Aviator Ace uh, uh, EFB. That it shows up there. By the time it shows up there, if it's a, it's a minimum of eight minutes old information, right. a minimum of eight minute old information, and then the timer on the the screen starts counting at one when my little screen receives it. Is there any way to know how, in fact, how actually old this data is when you're looking at it on the screen, or? I don't know about it, the others, but I just all, always assume that it's ten minutes older than yeah, than what exactly. it shows. Okay, exactly. Um, and 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 from that, I can discern a little bit watching an animation of an hour's worth of that, and kind of projecting ahead ten minutes on on way it's trending, and say, okay, that's what it, that's where it should really be. That's where I should really stay away from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or or conversely, that's where I should aim. That, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I um, guess. I guess you don't want to be thing, within ten minutes of this kind of weather, anyways, right? Well, they no. They kind of recommend against that. Yeah. yeah. Jeb, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Uh, the, the, I don't know. A couple of things going on here. Uh, one of them is, yeah. I mean, anybody who uses these tools should know this by now, and, it, and it's and it's. I'm sure it's in the documentation, and any any um, instruction or guidance that. You receive some from someone who knows what they're doing. We'll tell you the same thing. Um, using these, this is just another tool to to use in dealing with thunderstorms. It is not the end all and be all. It is not the only tool. The best tool is your Mark One Mod One eyeball, and and that also implies staying VFR, so you can see what you're getting into, and more importantly, see how far the other side is. 
uh, and, and hopefully standing clear the whole way through. If you can't do that, then you seriously need to just think about turning around and landing somewhere and, and waiting until you can. Um, just you know, earlier this month, uh, or maybe it was late last month, uh, there was a family of six in a PC-12, Platus PC-12. They were, um, they'd been in the Bahamas. They cleared customs at uh, Fort Pierce. They launched for Johnson City, Kansas, and came apart at flight level 260 uh, north of Orlando trying to get through a line of thunderstorms. If they had just waited a few hours or gone around them, you know, in, a, in that airplane, it's fairly fast. You got, you know, good legs, um, piece of cake. But no, they just plowed right through and came apart. You don't mess around with these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's some. Oh, I'm sorry. Next, go ahead, next, Jeb. Next red is just a tool. There are a lot of other tools to use, too. Yeah. Like, like any other tool, it has its drawbacks. Speaking of other tools, uh, one of the listener questions that we've been putting off for a few weeks uh, has to do with Pyreps. Uh, listener Riga Runner um, asks, I'd be very interested to hear the three of you talk about how often you file Pyreps, when and why not. Um, he, he goes on to ask a few of the follow-up uh, questions, uh, but what about Pyreps? Do you guys file Pyreps when you account? I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I look for them. I file them. Um, I don't make a habit of calling up flight service or flight watch and saying, um, weather's just as forecast, smooth ride, clear skies, um, because that's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. I look at Pyreps as, as no news is good news. Yeah. <laughs> but when you start seeing uh, Moonies and Bonanzas in, in Saratoga's reporting ice or, um, you know, severe turbulence or moderate, even moderate turbulence, those kinds of airplanes, or um, you know, and even a seven three, you know, depending on where it is and, and what the conditions are, yeah, I'll sit up and pay notice uh, to that. And if I see something that you know, if I if I see some ice, I'll report that as a as a uh, as a pyrap, as just as I'm getting out of it. Yeah. Um, uh, other unforecast conditions, absolutely, I'll pick up the mic. David, what's been your experience with pyrups? Uh, pretty regular. Uh, for one, I always appreciated getting information like the the, the pyrep that confirmed that 4,000 feet up, the winds were so much better that that was a smarter place to be, even if I lost true airspeed getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, wow, we shouldn't be getting ice here. We're getting ice here. And uh, filing a pyrep through the uh, controller that was handling me while I made in a uh, crisis deviation to someplace where icing wasn't accumulated. Uh, when you start to pick up ice in clear air, you, you kind of want to share that information with people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, it, it, that, that's one that gets around pretty quickly. Uh, and and in, in some ways, just because the, uh, the practice was good. Format the pilot report. Get it in the right order. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a routine to it. Mm-hmm. Call up flight safety. Most of the time, I'd I'd go off to flight service and file it that way. Uh, occasionally, if I was being handled by a controller and I really didn't want to let go of that handholding at that moment, I'd file it through them and they'd put it in the system. Right. No. But, you know, a long cross-country trip where you're going to be sitting five or six hours, sometimes it's kind of just nice to have an extra human voice going, I appreciate the power rep, sir. Uh, can I give you any information about what's ahead? Yeah, tell me what the winds are like 2,000 and 4,000 higher than where I am. 
Right. Now I'm hearing you talk about ice, you talk about wind, you talk about turbulence. Are there other subjects that are common themes for uh, pyrups? High density altitude. Uh, you know, when you get abnormally high temperatures at high altitudes, uh, that you know that sends the density altitude up even higher than where you are, which affects your cruise, uh, affects your fuel burn. Uh, those things are good to know because uh, other people will get up there and, and not be able to understand why the airplane's making even less power than it should mm-hmm. at that altitude. Yeah. Oh, well, they're at 9,000 feet, but it's so much warmer than standard that the density altitude's 13,000 feet. That's why you're not getting 75% cruise out of it. It's only making 55%. Uh, anybody ever anybody ever report that they heard that uh, Higdon was flying in the sector and uh, you need to usually they leave that to law enforcement yeah (laughs) I've never seen that pirate but I can I can certainly uh, imagine someone would do one yeah okay so I do uh, know a guy that wanted to file one once because a window came unexpectedly open. All right, we're going to move on from that. Let's see <laughs> what else. Is- oh, I didn't go there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I didn't. Huh? <laughs> I, did, I didn't open that can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pieces falling off of this airplane in uh, in Maine, I guess. Right, Bangor, Maine. Let's see Don't now. Hate when that happens. I know. Well, so let's see. Now, this is a story from the UPI.com website. Bangor, Maine, June twenty first. A piece of a small airplane fell off during an instructional flight and crashed through the roof of a banger na- man. I hate when that home. happens. Uh, let's see. Now, the part I like, let's see, where's the part? Well, here's a quote. We got to around 1,500 feet, and we heard a loud bang, and the plane started shaking. Yeah, always a bad sign, I think. This is, that's me speaking. <laughs> uh, it turned out a piston wrist pin, a part four inches long that connects, connects the arm and head of a piston inside a plane plane's engine cylinder. Broke off the Cessna. That doesn't sound like a good thing. That sounds like a part of the head. The arm and the head. The arm. Wait a minute. Uh, I think they mean the connecting rod to the piston. Well, that's sort of what I pictured. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, um, But that sounds like a fairly important part. I I think. Yeah. Well, it does help help that piston transfer energy. Yeah, I know. Jeb, go ahead. Here's the other thing, though. (laughs) That little uh, piston wrist pin is buried kind of deep in the engine. So there's got to be a nice (laughs) hole somewhere. Yeah, I know. This is good, but how did it get out? (laughs) Right. That, yeah, that's I mean the, that's, that's amazing. the part that tickled me. Yeah. I mean, it didn't it didn't come through the exhaust pipe, folks. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not the way that works. <laughs> and not only that, well, let's see. It says the story here says the small piece did an estimated five thousand dollars in damage to the home well, after it fell hey, through. It's a, it's a wrist pin. It weighs about a pound, maybe two pounds. Uh-huh. It's it's uh, basically solid steel. Yeah. Um, maybe I don't know three quarters of an inch diameter and and um, three four inches long. Yeah. Um and yeah, I can see where it would get some some momentum going. But it did f- 5 grand to his to his roof? Yeah, I think Come on. Uh, hey, the bad news is it did more dollar damage than that to the engine. I'm, sh- I'm sure. Well, yeah, and not to I mention. I know how that sucker got out of the cylinder. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, they had I know, to blow the cylinder off. They had to have blown a cylinder off. That's the only way that would or or knocked a hole in the crankcase. Well, I'm wondering if it didn't just break completely out of the bottom of the piston and then go out of the crankcase, like you said, because there's no way it's going to get through a cylinder wall. Yeah, it sounds to me like it just blew the head off the piston. Yeah. Uh, Something blew the head off the piston, and the the piston came apart in some fashion. Do you know what's missing from the the only way The only way the wrist pin would come off like that 
is if it had some some uh, torsion applied to it, uh, that would snap it out. But mm-hmm. just going up and down, that's what it's designed to do. So just blowing the top off the piston, off the cylinder, won't necessarily cause the wrist pin to fail. Right. But, you know, maybe it's inevitable. But uh, there's some other parts missing, I guess is my point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not think. just the wrist pin. They lost some other parts in this process. You'd think, huh? I was trying to Google for some other stories about this whole incident, but I'm not finding anything here. Uh, well, it, it, uh, the... Uh, <laughs> The flight was a checkout for a guy, a newly licensed pilot to rent a 172. <laughs> you get back on the ground in one piece after handling that emergency, they should sign your butt off. Right. I guess. Um, yeah, the plane did land successfully. Apparently, uh, it executed an emergency landing at Bangor International Airport. Uh, and, uh, and then it says, where, let's see, now, Eason is, uh, uh, let's see, faculty advisor for the University Flying Club. Who, who are the people that were on this aircraft? I'm trying to find names here in this story. We don't know why it happened. It happened because something broke. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, anyways. Uh, not an off-field landing of the week because they landed at an airport, but I guess it's sort of a forced landing of the week. How's that? Uh, yeah. Well, so. uh, and the uh, the uh, uh, he, this man gets the uh, wrist pin of honor award. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds funny. Uh, speaking of airplanes falling apart, and this is actually could be a little serious here. Um, are there problems with LSAs and the quality of their manufacture or? What's going on here? The story is that uh, sounds like there, sounds like there's some documentation issues. Yeah, U.S. I'm reading from a story here from uh, BusinessWeek.com. U.S. regulars. The headline is "Sport Plane Makers Warned by FAA to Stop Evading Rules." U.S. Oh, regulators warn manufacturers of so-called light sport aircraft. I like that so-called light sport aircraft. That many of them are violating safety standards and could be shut down. Most makers aren't following rules that were streamlined to help a struggling industry, the Federal Aviation Administration said in a Federal Register filing yesterday. Uh, Jeb, not following the rules? I don't know that. Yeah, I'm going to try to, while we're doing this, I'm going to try to find the original document. Hang okay. David, you, you, this, sometimes you're a little more tuned into this whole LSA world. Do you know what's going on here? Is, is this a thing? Are the airplanes genuinely dangerous, or are they just not doing the paperwork? Well, from, from what I read and what I've got out of Dan Johnson's uh, uh, website on this, uh, the FAA has done some compliance audits, compliance audit being that they show up at the factory and look at the paperwork because they don't. the FAA doesn't certify light sport aircraft the same way they do Part 23 and Part 25 factory airplanes. The, uh, the manufacturer shows that they've complied with a bunch of areas of requirement that are required and they file a compliance document and the FAA looks it over and says yep you did everything well the FAA has been following up by examining the documents of some of the factories and some of the factories apparently are not doing quite the job that they need to be on making sure that the paperwork documenting what they've done to to uh, uh, stay in compliance they haven't stayed in compliance with the paperwork requirements for this way it's playing. So there so, wasn't. Were there any reports of of actual non-compliance with the standards? Just just or is it just paperwork? Well, it's the paperwork and the, the paperwork. If you're missing a couple of pages of the paperwork on an individual airplane, you can't document or state 
validly that that airplane's in compliance because you don't know. There's no paperwork to back that up. Right. But I guess what I'm asking is, did, did FAA probe further to determine whether or not, in fact, the compliance happened, even though it wasn't documented? I think they have, yeah. And uh, I, I think that's why this is focused primarily on, the, on getting the paperwork and the reporting uh, and documentation uh, filing uh, up to the standards the FAA expects. If they were finding problems with the airplanes, I'm pretty sure we would have heard about that yeah. at this stage. Jeb, did you find anything? Well, I've, I'm over, I found the document and it's dated uh, yesterday, uh, Thursday, June 28. Um, page, if anybody, if anybody cares, page uh, three eight four six three of that day's Federal Register, Thursday, June 28. Uh, and um, looking, basically, it's a restatement of FAA policy, and maybe it's amplification of FAA policy on the certification and documentation of LSAs, specifically SLSAs. Um, those manufactured uh, um, instead of uh, being uh, home, uh, amateur built, experimental amateur built. Um, here's a quote paragraph from the uh, from the document. This is a notice, by the way. This is not a proposed rule or a final rule or an AD or anything like that. This is simply a notice. The FAA is putting the public on notice of its policies in these areas. This is, quote, the FAA is particularly concerned that manufacturers issuing a statement of compliance have a system to monitor and correct safety of flight issues. The manufacturer, therefore, must be able to monitor and notify operators to correct unsafe conditions for as long as these aircraft are U.S. registered. Uh, and it goes on. These are just some of the, the types of things that the FAA is emphasizing here. I don't see in this document um, any smoking gun from the FAA saying, you know, X, Y, Z aircraft manufacturer or this specific model or something like that has a documentation problem. They're not going there. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, <clears throat> what, it, what it says at the, at the top, it says, um, based upon its assessment of the special light sport aircraft, SLSA manufacturing industry, the FAA is issuing this notice of policy to inform the public of its policy for assessing the accuracy of declarations made uh, to ensure airworthiness. Um, in, in response to findings noted in its assessment of the SLSA manufacturing industry, the FAA is reiterating its policy. Um, so... What they're, what they're basically saying here is we're finding irregularities and we'll f we're finding missing paperwork and, and missing documentation. And we're not going to be pointing any fingers right now because maybe there's some people who just don't really understand what the rules are. These are what the rules are. Use these as a guideline and we'll be back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Neville, you have control of the board. Select a category. Disclaimers for 100. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are appearing as this. Neville, what is private individuals? Correct. Select again. Disclaimers for 200. Their comments do not necessarily reflect these. Neville, what is the opinions of the organizations they work for? Yes. Select again. Disclaimers for 300. Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously this. Neville, what is very general? That's it. Disclaimers for 400. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and fly this. Neville, what is the aircraft? Yes, select. Disclaimers for 500. But you knew this. 
Robert. What's a lineys? No, Wendy. What is the punchline? No, Neville. What is that? Correct, but you knew that. Congratulations, Neville. You have swept the category. Much more positive LSA story here. Uh, Cessna, I'm going to characterize this as Cessna is uh, is sending uh, skycatchers out on barnstorming uh, tours here. They're... Uh, you guys heard about this, right? Because, Dave, you're the one that put the story in the list, and I heard about it separately, that uh, Cessna is sending skycatchers out to various uh, fly-ins and whatnot around the country for to do, I guess, demo rides or something like that. What do you know about this? Cessna has, Cessna has created a team of eight young pilots, I think college graduates, all of them, from aviation programs. Uh, they're all CFIs. And they put them out on a road tour with sky catchers to promote learning to fly via the light sport uh, uh, segment that the sky catchers designed to uh, to service. Uh, it's a little reminiscent of when the General Aviation Manufacturers Association uh, had uh, learned to fly girls touring the United States in different Gamma members' airplanes. Sometimes it'd be a a Beach, sometimes it'd be a Cessna, sometimes it'd be a Piper. Uh, They took turns. They did different parts of the country. They would recruit uh, people to come to these little road shows where they'd talk about the airplane, show it off, give demo rides, uh, help the local dealers, you know, increase the foot traffic through their FBOs. and there have been some people, and I don't want to point fingers, but there have been some people that have suggested that this kind of thing has been missing and long needed for about the last 25 or 30 years. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't want to, you know, uh, Dave Higdon, David, uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't want to point any fingers. Yeah, no, right, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, well, it, it, it is, uh, it, they've done some cool. great, de- they've done some great outreach efforts that always came up short of really putting skin in the game. Yeah. That is actually spending big money to get out there and hope to generate big sales. We had to be a pilot uh, that ran for a while. Uh, the manufacturers and some of the companies spent a lot of money. They ran TV ads and, and, and radio ads to try to recruit people to come down for discounted introductory lessons. They drove some traffic to the, to the flight schools. Uh, but not nearly in the kind of volume needed to match the money they were spending. Yeah, uh, I don't think I don't think ads on TV go as far as when you get invited to a a, a dog and pony show, show with some attractive youngster in this pretty new little airplane, and get a chance to get you know taken around for fifteen or twenty minutes and shown what it's like. And by the way, this guy here can sign you up for a discount learn to fly program, prepay, and you'll get it cheap. Yeah, I know. Jeb, Jeb, you're you still out there? You got stepped on. I'm sorry. Yeah, a couple of other things in this story are kind of interesting. Um, Cessna is also, I don't know if it's this weekend or if this is written after the uh, event, Cessna just celebrated or is celebrating the delivery of the 10,000th airplane from its factory in Independence, Kansas. Cool, yeah. And that's only been open since July 96. That's, um, I didn't know that they had sold that many airplanes. 10,000 in 10,000 airplanes 25 years 26 no, 20 no 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 15 yeah um 16 years 16 oh, 16 years. years still okay even more even better right yeah 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 i i i'm sure i knew they were selling thousands of airplanes over that period of time i didn't know that it had reached 10,000 that's i that strikes me as is very interesting 
But um, what was the other thing? Yeah, they're going to meet up at, at Oshkosh, um, the, the, the kids doing this tour. Yeah. Uh, wherever they're going and whatever they're going to do, they're all going to wind up back at Oshkosh. Yeah. We actually heard from these folks in the UCAP forums. See, if you're not listening, if you're not reading the UCAP forums, you're missing out on stuff because uh, – a user who goes by the name of Honey Badger, uh, who is apparently, uh, his real name is Ed Honey, uh, checks in in the forums, uh, so, you know, back on June 22nd. And he says, he says, my name is Ed Honey. I'm interning at Cessna this su- summer, and I'm dispatching eight different 162 Skycatchers to, et cetera. He goes on to talk about fly-ins and whatnot. And he was asking for suggestions that, that we and our, uh, that I and the listeners had about fly-ins. And uh, a, a number of suggestions were made here in the forums. One was if they had any spare weekends where they didn't have a fly-in, they could send one my way but um, i'm not sure how they if that's going to happen oh well but uh yeah well, one, one, some some of the what would be good events to tap have already happened this year uh that's the only unfortunate thing about this there's a, a number of smaller events that would be good for them to touch base at that are already passed uh but if Cessna is smart and continues to run something like this through next spring and maybe gets them out on the road about the time of sun and fun, uh, they could have a really full plate. Uh, be good to see. Well, I hope that this program on Cessna's part doesn't end at Oshkosh. I hope you're right. Unfortunately, I think, I, I, I'm not sure if I want to use the word end, but apparently because, what did I see? Someplace in here, because it's being done by college kids on internships, um, it kind of wraps up midsummer because they're all heading back to school. Um, I thought they were all graduates. I said uh, 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 in one of the responses in the forums, Honey Badger writes, for anyone interested, here's the schedule that we have so far. He says the internship ends in August, so we're pretty much done after Oshkosh, he says. so, but I mean, you know, uh, it's I, a start. It's a start. A respectful message to Cessna, urging them to continue to carry on with this program, might might be in order. You know, so. better, yeah, better still, if you find one of them coming close to you, take out some, take somebody out to the ballpark, who, yeah. who's talked about learning to fly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, here's a fun story. Uh, our uh, our uh, our favorite advocate of GA in the United States Senate, uh, Senate Inhofe. Senator Inhofe has uh, has been touting the fact that so this pilot's bill of rights that he apparently introduced roundabout Oshkosh last summer has passed in the Senate. Is that what I heard? Is this that's that's what the AOPA reported today? See, I would have sworn I heard a story about sometime in the last month or so that said that it was dead or that it was dying. It was it was it was had been tacked on to another bill. Uh huh. Yeah. And that bill got killed. Oh, okay. Okay, and I don't remember which bill it was or, or when that all occurred, but what this AOPA story is saying is that earlier today, uh, the United States Senate passed a, the Pilot's Bill of Rights, written and sponsored by, by uh, what we call Senator X, uh, Senator <laughs> James Inhofe of Oklahoma. It's an inside joke, folks. Uh, you had to have been listening for a while. Not think that ab- inside. Think about it. You'll get it. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, just... Um, so you know, I, I don't. I have no clue. None. I have no zero zip. Not a squat. Bupkis uh, idea of what the United States House of Representatives will do. Yeah. On well. This bill. Um, but that kind of doesn't not matter. Only, not, 
uh, uh, even Allah doesn't know what the United States House of Representatives. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it kind of doesn't matter. Well, see, no, my cynicism was just going to kind of just going to overflow there for a minute, um, observing that that this happened just prior to Oshkosh, just in time for the senator to come on m- make another victory. No, lap. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I don't think that, I'm shocked. As a, shocked that you think as a minority party member. Yeah, Jack. David. As a minority party member, I'm not sure that the senator has that much influence over the schedule uh, in in a way to have something that pleasantly Machiavellian happen in his favor. What did help was that he already had 65 senators co-sponsoring this. Uh So he already had a majority. All he had to do was talk the majority leader uh, into sliding this in between a couple of things passes by unanimous consent, moves on, and it gets it out of everybody's hair. I know. Now, that's the, that's the cynic in me who only got cynical from watching this kind of hijinks go on firsthand. So my expectation is that if one of the really strong uh, general aviation uh, uh, supporters in the House, who is of the majority party, can get the same kind of leg up with his leadership – that Inhofe had to get with the majority leadership in the Senate. That's opposite parties over there, kiddies. Well, uh, can get this going. Jeb, all go you ahead. Do is, is pick a, all you got to do is pick a member of the House who wants to write off his trip to Oshkosh this year. <laughs> oh, geez. Cynical much? All right. Uh, we're really, it's research. Research. That's ne- what it is. We're nearing the end of our allotted time here. Let's see now. Anything else we want to talk about here? Uh, uh, glider Seriously, pilot. Congratulations, Senator. Uh, last year we were giving you uh, odds in the in the range of slim and none. Yeah, yeah. I I I got I, I got to admit, uh, hats off. Um, I, I would never have thought this bill would have gone through the Senate or any other legislative body for that matter <laughs> as a freestanding bill or to begin with at all. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So tonight. I just happen to have some fresh crow in the fridge that I'll have along with an extra beer. Uh All right. Uh, What else here? Uh, Let's see now. Two things. Uh, uh, David, double the number of glider pilots. Is that really true? That's the number that uh, this uh, researcher came up with. I did not do the research. That in the last decade, the number of new glider pilots doubled over the previous decade? Am I interpreting this correctly? No, it, well, doubled from what it was 10 years ago to what it is now. Uh, oh, the number doubled, not there were n- twice as many new ones as there were in the last period. Still, it's very cool. It's very cool. I was going to say, are, are, are we talking about the same thing? Maybe we are. If you started out with 500 <laughs> and you wound up with 1,000, not only do you have 500 new ones, but you've doubled the number Total. The crux of and, the story is that gliding is doing well. Is that it's a it's popular and it's getting new pilots, and that's a good that, thing. That reminds me the little the little confusion between you two on nomenclature reminds me a couple of days ago uh, on Facebook, um, a friend of mine, Stan Fetter, was putting up pictures of some repaving and restriping work being done on Hyde Field Executive uh, Hyde, Hyde Executive in uh, Maryland, one of the DC three airports. And he put out these pictures, and I said, you know, on Facebook, I just, you know, said, why don't you just change the number and mess with people instead of instead of run, you know, have have two, three on both ends of the runway. <laughs> yeah. Since he's, do, you know, he's out there painting, why not? And the other choice, though, was the, the one I liked best was square root twenty five. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I yeah okay that would that, oh no and let's not go there okay um uh what was the other one I wanted to ask about here let's see now oh I think what I'm going to do is say shout outs any shout outs well, before we leave this if you look at the chart that's on the that with the link on this glider pilot story mm-hmm. it is not just doubled it 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 came close to being triple well. There we go. From 8,400 to more than 21,000 from 2001 to 2011. And I would bet money, I would bet a case of your favorite lineys, that an element of this was the fact that gliders, and that includes motor gliders, don't have to have, glider pilots don't have to have a medical certificate. Oh, yeah. Right now, balloon pilots, glider pilots, motor glider pilots do not have to have a medical certificate, oh, but they can yeah. fly aircraft that are heavier than and faster than light sport. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Just pointing it out. Yep. Interesting. And while they're thinking about uh, the exemption or the waiver application for third-class medicals for some people, I would point out that this is fairly good evidence that the lack of a medical has not caused any safety problems when you've got a population that's damn near tripled in 10 years. Right. Yeah. So now I'm done. Okay. Uh, my quick shout-out is uh, actually more of a follow-up. Uh, a bunch of episodes ago, we got the box O chocolate from Germany, and in the box O chocolate was an odd spacer, sort of washer-like thing that was made up of many different uh, layers. Uh, it was sort of a, a laminated thing of uh, uh, layers of, of very, hang very. On, hang on a second. Who do we get the box, box of chocolate from? Let's, uh, give, let's give some credit. Yeah. I, see, now you've tricked me into into finding his name. Brad, pilot yeah. Brad, pilot yeah. Brad from 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 Stuttgart, as I recall. Uh, uh, and so, anyways, the uh, in the forums, a couple of different listeners chimed in on this uh, this uh, what we some people called a peelable washer, all right, um, or multiple layered washer. Scoffrey Jet, Jeff Ward, our, our, uh, our indispensable helper on the podcast, uh, did some research. He says, I did a quick Google search and got a hit on an old Army technical manual for electrical, electromechanical rotary actuators, servos that reference some sort of units assembled with, quote-unquote, peelable spacers. That was 1964. Hmm. Um, and then listener, where is it here? Let's see now. Uh, listener, oh, I had it a second ago. Listener, UCAP Mark, which, which, by the way, interesting coincidence that his initials are the same as our podcast. Uh, listener, UCAP Mark uh, writes, yes, those are these. Oh, and by the way, I put a couple pictures in the forum thread so people could look at them. Yes, these are adjustable shim washers. Uh, I've used similar items for installing computer racks where alignment was critical. So apparently you peel off however many layers you need to peel off in, in order to make the, the thing the hmm. precise thickness that you need. So that's apparently First what, you need a washer, then you need to peel it before you cook it. Yeah, and then, and then, you're, and, and then you just tighten it down with a wrench. Anyways, so that's my shout-out. Any of you got any shout-outs? Uh, this is to uh, Matt Gregory, who's a writer, reporter for um, Channel 10, WTHI-TV in Terry Haute, Indiana. Uh, article posted on that station's website, headlined, An Antique Airplane Lands in the Valley. This is, this is about uh, some, uh, some rides being given in a 1929 Ford Trimotor. But the thing that really caught my eye here was the lead sentence. It says, last year, travel experts estimate over 672 million folks used either planes or jets 
for travel within the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> well, you know, I didn't realize people used both. I. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about this last week. Van Nuys is going to create a special section of the airport for the planes, and the jets can be over in the other place. I guess it's – yeah, I know. That's how it works. Anyways, what else? Anything else? Is uh, that it? Fork time? Hey, the folks and kids in Maryland who set a new world record for a human-powered helicopter with Gamera 2, 35 seconds. Keep it up, kids. You're on your way to that 60-second record. Uh, you one, know, I saw one that other s- thing here. Go you know, ahead, Jeb. One other thing here, real quick. You know, the show of shows is coming up. Oshkosh, you haven't made your plans. You know, now's a good time. I know. I know. Absolutely. I got my NOTAM last week. Yeah. And, and on it that. It has s- a yellow cub on the cover. Mm hmm. On that subject, uh, let me just quickly, and this is from my head, but I'm pretty sure I've got these dates right. Uh, we've got a bunch of things happening, uh, UCAP things happening at, at Oshkosh this summer. We're going to be recording two, uh, actually three, but let me talk about two first. Two regular episodes of the podcast through our friends, uh, through and with our friends at EAA Radio. We're going to be doing the first of those on uh, Monday evening, uh, uh, the opening day of AirVenture. That'll be at approximately 6 p.m. Uh, there at the radio station. That will be uh, uh, aired live on EA Radio, streamed on the internet, I would imagine, and also, of course, packaged up and put on our feed uh, later on. We will be doing another regular episode on Closing Day, again, our sort of traditional uh, uh, Sunday morning uh, watching the airplanes depart from the uh, front deck at EA Radio. Uh, I believe we're beginning that one at 10 a.m. Oshkosh time. And by the way, both these times are our central uh, uh, daylight time here in the U.S., uh, in the event that you're listening on the internet, I guess is my point here. So uh, 10 a.m. Uh, Sunday morning uh, from the deck, uh, talking about the things that we're seeing happening there and talking about the week uh, in review, so to speak. Uh, that's Sunday. Uh, we will be doing our uh, our uh, UCAP uh, uh, meetup, so to speak, our, our little party uh, on Thursday evening. We're calling it the, uh, what do we decide we're going to call it? We're going to call it the uh, the tie-down party. That's what we're tie-down calling it. Tie-down party. Yeah, we're going to call it the UCAP tie-down party. Uh, which will be on Thursday evening from uh, 6 until about 8. Uh, and you don't have to bring your own ropes. That's right. No, you don't. Uh, we'll, we'll provide all the tie-downs. Yeah. <laughs> bring a gag for David. Though. <laughs> all right. Uh, we will Good be, luck uh, with that. And now these are these are this is sort of a fast breaking story. Um, uh, just today we discovered, sadly, that we will not be able to do one of the uh, welcome center uh, sessions that we've done for the last couple of years. That's the sort of stage presentation, that live presentation that we've done for a couple of years now. Um, there are all kinds of scheduling problems, and things are changing and evolving at EAA, and so um, um, we, we aren't able to do that this year. So instead, we're going to record a full blown one hour hour, hour ninety minute episode during the tie-down party on Thursday uh, evening. We'll probably begin that around about 7 p.m. at the tie-down party. And uh, uh, we'll have some of our special guests there. Of course, the three of us will be there. And uh, we would love to also have a chance to chat with some of the listeners who appear there. So uh, the uh, UCAP tie-down party at uh, on Thursday evening from 6 to 8, uh, probably at the same location it's been the last couple of years, just outside the so-called Super 8 gate on the northwest corner of the field. 
And uh, so there's that. We're going to be doing our UCAP dailies throughout the week. And, uh, and of course, the three of us will also be contributing to the Air Venture Today newspaper all week long. So uh, that's, uh, that's enough. Believe me, that's plenty of stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's plenty of stuff for us to be doing while we're at Oshkosh. Uh, and, we're go- and I hear there's an air show going on. There's a fly-in going on. So we're going yeah. to see some stuff. So, so that's, uh, that's Oshkosh. Uh, can't wait. Three, what is it, like three weeks from now? Three, three and a half weeks? Something like that? Something like that. Three yeah. weeks from Monday. Yeah. So which means it'll be about, about a day and a half after this episode hits the streets. No, 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 no. We're going to get better, I promise. I didn't say a word. I know you didn't. I know you didn't, but you, but you laughed when I said it. Anyways, anything else? Is that the last of the shout-outs? Now it's fork time. Uh, that's Dave Higdon. He's an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, you been working on anything fun you want to tell us about? Well, I've uh, been working on some stuff that's going to be fun to talk about in another couple of weeks, uh, but... Had uh, something that I worked on a few months ago pop into currency this week when the NTSB issued its little statement about the latency issues with data link weather. And uh, the uh, nice folks at the Aircraft Electronics Association highlighted that in their every other week AEA Wired uh, publication and mentioned that We'd talked about this very issue and some of related issues to the same problem in the April Avionics News in a story called, Sometimes You Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows. So there's a link. So we should dig up the April issue is what you're saying. I sent you a link. Okay. All right. That'll be, we'll try and see if we can get, I'm sure Jeff will put that in the show notes. And, uh, And where can people find you on the internet, David? Oh, AEA.net, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, AvBuyer.com, and a couple other places where they like me enough to pay me good money, but they don't use my name, so we won't go there. Okay. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what have you been working on? Anything interesting? Uh, kind of like David, uh, can't really talk about too much of it right yet because it's not fully formed. It's not fully baked yet, but, okay. uh, working on several things. Um, the next issue of Aviation Safety Magazine among them, uh, we'll be talking about, um, detecting and avoiding thunderstorms, a la the, uh, NTSB discussion earlier in this uh, episode and, uh, a few other things. So uh, a few other timely things. So, cool. uh, and we're- uh, should be should be a good issue. Uh, that's AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Uh, you can find me at JEBurnside.com and um, oh, maybe on AEA.net sometime. Mm-hmm. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, I'm working on a bunch of different things right now, so preparing for uh, for Air Venture. Uh, of course, I've been talking about my Around the Field uh, uh, ebook, Kindle ebook, uh, Volume Two should be out uh, around about the time of Air Venture. That'll be cool. Uh, I'm also uh, relaunched my uh, my aviation blog over at AroundTheField.net. So if you've heard me saying AroundTheField.net for all these years and checked it out and said, "But there's nothing going on there," there is now. So go check out uh, my blog over there. And uh, I'm just going to drop a big hint about something that I've been working on a lot lately that I'm getting very, very excited about. Uh, it's a, a, a something we've been hinting at for literally years now, and uh, maybe just about the time we arrive in Oshkosh, it will come to fruition. So stay tuned. More about that later on. 
Uh, oh, and, and in general, learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and, as I said, aroundthefield.net. Uh, big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and uh, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can view the forums, check out the wiki, the wiki, aviation wiki. movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and all and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Best way to grow old without growing old is to uh, go fly, because, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMF. <laughs> <laughs>